This Israel report is brought to you by the Blue Agency. Your Israel property is in good hands. Owning properties in Israel can be a great investment, but challenging to manage if you're based abroad. The Blue Agency will manage every aspect of your property, finding and vetting tenants, maintaining your property and getting it rental ready, negotiating contracts and collecting rentals, reporting back to you regularly. The Blue Agency has built a reputation for trust and confidentiality over 20 years. The Blue Agency, your Israel property is in good hands. Contact us at www.thebluagency.com. Good morning, Anthony Reich. How are you? Booker Tov. Um, so um, we we spoke yesterday about renaming the war um, to um, a, a more appropriate uh, wartime name rather than an operation name. Um, and interestingly, um, yesterday um, the IDF made an announcement that they had finished dismantling Hamas in the Jabalia area. Now, we had committed quite a number of soldiers to Jabalia, uh, most of them coming from the IDF's Division 162. Um, And we understand that there were three battalions of Hamas terror forces stationed in the Jabalia area. The IDF have said that they've managed to kill more than a thousand Hamas terrorists in that area. In addition to that, they've arrested 500 more terrorists. And also, they have arrested 3,000 non-combatant individuals who have been somehow associated with Hamas um, during that time. Of the people that have been uh, arrested, apparently 70 of them actually personally participated in the massacres that took place on October the 7th. So quite a good achievement um, in Jabalia for the IDF and you know the question is why would we even say we finished working there and um, and you know that we're going to go into a different phase um, I think there are really two reasons first of all the number of soldiers that have been committed to Jabalia is not insignificant and potentially those soldiers could be then redirected to other tasks um, let's not also forget that the task in Jabalia was actually interrupted for a period of two weeks um, during which we had the um, ceasefire and the hostage exchange. So that was right in the middle of the operations in Jabalia. Um, but I think also um, the IDF is now beginning to talk about phase three. If what we've been doing up until now is phase two or stage two, we're now moving to what they're calling stage three where they're saying that this is after the main war, but still continues um, to keep very, very careful police of what's going on and to destroy terror infrastructure where needed and to still round up and to take care of terrorists who might be operating in the area, but within the context of allowing some element of rebuilding to go on. And there are some suggestions that stage three could take between three and nine months uh, in order to allow all of that to go on. It's not clear what would be stage four, what would happen after stage three. And that I think is still up for discussion in terms of who will be responsible for Gaza and how Gaza will be um, policed and, and, and who will be responsible for administrating Gaza thereafter. Um, but we, we have a little bit of insight into the thinking 
uh, that's going on into the IDF. And one of the other things that the IDF has mentioned is that it has destroyed more than 1,500 from us tunnel shafts. These are entrances to tunnels from street level going down. Um, and there are still huge numbers of tunnels that have yet to be dealt with. So it starts to give an, uh, an understanding um, of the extent to which this Hamas infrastructure um, is just pervasive everywhere. Um, there were quite a number of houses um, that were destroyed in the Jabalia area. Um, two, apparently, of the houses in that area are connected somehow to Yahya Sinwar, um, the military leader of Hamas, one apparently related to his daughter. Um, they are houses that have been taken over. Of course, there's no sign of the Sinwa family anywhere. Um, but uh, that was one of the things that came out yesterday, which gives us a little bit of insight into some of the thinking within the IDF. The other thing which I think might be interesting to listeners is um, some of the intelligence that has been gained from hospital administration staff. Yes, we do and need to talk about that. Have, yeah, I mean, what we've learned from um, the interrogation that has been put through, that some of the hospital staff have been put through, is that when you see a hospital, it's not really just a hospital. And we are starting to get a clear understanding of why the IDF was so insistent upon evacuating those hospitals and on getting into the hospital and also detaining many of the staff members of the hospital because we understand that many of the staff members in the hospital also doubled up as very, very operative Hamas terrorists from within the hospital. And it was clear that the hospital was being run as a kind of a mixed uh, situation where there was medical help being given to people, but much of the activities of the hospital were geared towards supporting, helping Hamas and furthering their terror aims, including employing Hamas terrorists as, as, as staff in the hospital. And of course, we don't need to talk about the infrastructure underneath the hospital, the uh, tunnels and um, some of the other storage facilities um, from within the hospitals. All of that um, we already knew about. But some of this new information about how intrusive Hamas were into these hospitals and how much they were relying upon the facade of it being a hospital as being a, some sort of a, a, a shield against um, any activities by the IDF and the fact that they could hold this up to the international community to say the IDF are um, attacking or getting involved with a hospital. This was always um, going to be their strategy and we can understand much more clearly now why the IDF was so insistent upon not allowing those hospitals to continue to operate as they were before. And there's still quite a lot of work going on. Other slightly smaller hospitals around Gaza where there still continues to be terror activities being conducted from within the hospital. So that intelligence was all very, very interesting. Whether the international community would take note of this uh, remains to be seen. Um, I'm not so sure. It's interesting that uh, President Biden has said he does hold Hamas responsible for what's happening to civilians in Gaza. But, and there is always a but, and the but is that Israel needs to be more, um, uh, needs to be a lot better at separating its activities against terrorists as opposed to its activities against civilians. Is the guy just a complete idiot, Anthony? Is he a complete idiot? 
I'm sorry. To, um, to, I know that I he is your ally, but really, I just, I just read this and I just think somebody needs to take his microphone away. You know. Yeah. So I mean, <laughs> it's, yeah. it's pretty clear. It's pretty clear that there is really no distinction between civilian and military in Gaza, and to the extent that civilians are being killed and there's no doubt that there are people who are really civilians who are being killed but this is really because gaza is really one large military camp with civilians happening to happening to live there that's really the way that it's been set up there is no area of gaza that does not have terrorists and that does not have terror infrastructure so there's no possible way of somehow saving civilian infrastructure and saving civilians when they are so intrinsically mixed up with all of the military activity in Gaza. Yeah, you know, you mentioned that it's all a facade and that is how I am coming, as much as I don't like it, I am coming to see the plight of um, many of the people living in Gaza and, and, this, and this facade around the Palestinian people, you know, that is how, that is what it feels like. You've got a, a people that have never been allowed to move forward. They have been kicked out of different countries. They've never been able to give up their identity. It, it's, it's, it feels like a, like a facade. It feels like a production from where I'm sitting well, and, really I'm, and I'm looking at this. It really is because the whole concept of the Palestinian people in the first place was set up originally by Yasser Arafat in order to destroy Israel. That was really what the leadership were aiming towards. And I know that we've been through so many different uh, generations of um, trying to understand this and people saying, actually, we need to give peace a second chance. And there are people, reasonable people, who want to um, live side by side. But really, the whole concept of Palestine and the Palestinian people was really only uh, set up after the 1967 war, the Six-Day War, when um, the Gaza Strip and many areas within Judea, Samaria, and of course the Sinai became, uh, was conquered, were conquered by Israel in that war. And all of a sudden, they started to understand that they're losing ground because whereas in 1948, they thought that they might be able to attack Israel and take away whatever the United Nations had granted to the Jews, and they failed to do so. When it came to 1967, they lost even further ground. That was really the building blocks for the so-called Palestinian people and the Palestinian concept which was really always going to be, how can we use this strategy to destroy Israel? And if that hasn't become clear over the last three months to people, if that's not clear to, to, to people who are watching this, then it can never be clear because what happened on October the 7th was so stark and so obvious that if you don't believe um, what happened then and what was dri driving it, then unfortunately um, we, we're sort of um, we're not going to be able to convince you because um, that is the most extreme example, the most extreme set of facts that you can be given in order to demonstrate a certain concept. Yeah. Anthony, I see that uh, there were comments and it was obviously a closed session in the Knesset last night about the fate of the terrorists that um, Israel captured on the 7th of October. What do you think should happen to them? Yeah, well, there are a number of different uh, interesting ideas floating around about um, what we should be doing 
with those terrorists and terrorists in general. This was a, 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 an issue that was also raised by Mervyn, which I haven't really had the opportunity to respond to from last week. Yeah. But there is an increasing volume of noise about why Israel even bothers to keep terrorists in jail and whether terrorists shouldn't be executed under Israel's uh, um, law, where there is actually a law, and we know that there has been one person who has so far um, been uh, granted the death sentence and been executed, which of course was Adolf Eichmann, and and, uh, many of us um, have read and and understood what went on during the Eichmann trial and exactly why he was executed, but he's really the only one who's been executed under that law, which, which talks about crimes against humanity. The, the, the capital punishment is reserved in Israel for people who commit crimes against humanity. Now, exactly how we define crimes against humanity is unclear to me. In other words, is the act of an individual terrorist um, killing an Israeli considered to be a crime against humanity? I don't know. Is what happened on October the 7th considered to be a crime against humanity? Once again, I don't know. Um, but that's what the what capital punishment um, is reserved for in Israel. And there is an increasing um, support for the idea that terrorists should be um, subject to capital punishment, which means, A, that taxpayers' money doesn't need to be invested in order to keep them in prisons. And by the way, when we say keep them in prison, they have very good conditions in prison. They're allowed to study. Many of them gain degrees. They get to learn a lot about us and our culture. Someone like Yikia Sinwar came out of prison speaking fluent Hebrew and knowing a lot more about Israelis and Jews because of the time that he spent in prison. And he's definitely used that now in this war that he's waged against us. Um, So the question is, do we want to expose them to be able to give them information and, and knowledge about us, which will then and simply enable them to use it against us in the future. It's a, it's a question which I think is a very valid question. Also, um, the moment we have prisoners in the, in our prisons, it just then begs prison exchange. It just then begs people to kidnap soldiers and to kidnap Israelis in order to somehow use them to release prisoners from prison. If they're not in prison, then you don't really have that danger, um, that, that desire to release them because they're not there. And of course, the whole concept of um, you know the number of prisoners who have been released and have gone back to to reoffending and have gone back to committing acts of terror is there is quite a high proportion. So um, you know all of those things say to us we really shouldn't be keeping all of these terrorists in our prisons indefinitely for for ongoing periods of time, and that really the right way to deal with it is to subject them to the law, which does allow capital punishment if whatever they've done um, is uh, considered to be uh, uh, within the the scope of what that law covers. Um, And of course, you know, once again, I know the listeners have a lot um, of of views on this, so we can certainly open that up for discussion because I think it is a discussion and it's certainly one that's being held in Israel right now. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I mean, um, Mervyn weighing in in, in, with relation to Joe Biden and says even if his mic is taken away, he still remains a complete idiot. And, you know, Mervyn... (laughs) I disagree. Anthony can't weigh in and he won't weigh in. But uh, I, I still also think that Biden is, a, is an idiot. I'm sorry. Moving on. Anthony, what is the... Actually, what do you want to say? What we need to talk about, I think, is <laughs> yes. I think we need to talk about a potential hostage exchange. Yes. Where there's a lot of increasing talk now 
the Prime Minister yesterday met with hostage families. They are camped out outside the military headquarters building the Kiria and Tel Aviv. Hostage families are there. We have this weekly uh, uh, gathering, I don't want to call it a demonstration, it's not really a demonstration, but it's a gathering of tens of thousands of people who come together every week um, outside the museum um, area in Tel Aviv, um, talking about the hostages. We all have yellow ribbons and yellow bracelets, um, and we all have the dog tags um, where we are calling for the release of our hostages immediately. Um, A few things have happened over the last few days, which I think are very significant and point to a potential hostage exchange, another hostage exchange in the near future. Number one, um, of course, the Prime Minister messed with the hostage families yesterday. We're not exactly sure what goes on, but there is a lot of anger about the fact that the government is not pushing the idea of a hostage exchange more strongly. The second thing is that we've had two releases now, one from the Palestinian Islamic Jihad and one from Hamas, of videos showing Israeli hostages alive. That's too, it's a show of life. That's a show of life that they do have the hostages available to exchange. The third thing that is important and uh, relevant to this discussion is that apparently Khaled Meshal, who is the the, uh, poli- the head of the, the Hamas political bureau, we understand he's arrived in Egypt to talk about hostages because apparently that shows that there is a lot more serious uh, talk about um, a potential hostage exchange. What I've seen written is that there could potentially be a ceasefire for a week in exchange for 40 hostages being released back to Israel. I think those families would of welcome it. We would all welcome it. Does the does the ceasefire cost us anything? Well, we will only really know that after it's over. Um, will we need to release prisoners? I'm guessing we will do. Who are the prisoners? I'm not really sure. But certainly the idea of a hostage exchange right now seems to to be heating up and um, it's more um, on the cards than it has been for some time Um, and so all the signs seem to be pointing towards a potential hostage exchange. It's interesting that Hamas said we're not going to talk hostage exchange until you stop fighting. Clearly that hasn't happened but there is talk about a hostage exchange and I agree with Israel's point of view that we will not stop fighting until it has been agreed rather than until we need to start talking. So that's really where things stand at the moment on a potential hostage exchange. Anthony, we wish you a safe day and a good day. May it be a good day. Thank you. And uh, thank you very, very much. That was uh, Anthony Reich. Up next, we have news. That Israel report was brought to you by the Blue Agency. Your Israel property is in good hands. Hi, it's Barry Cohen from the Blue Agency. Israel is currently facing one of its biggest challenges ever. All of Klal Israel is praying for the safety of our soldiers and the return of the hostages. We hope and pray that our soldiers and security forces will prevail and that they will all return home speedily and triumphant. We hold the hands of our clients and friends who have children serving in Sahal, who are protecting Israel and Jews around the world. May Hashem protect us all.